Welcome to season two of The Plants We Eat, a podcast from the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens that investigates the fascinating history, biology, and culture behind the plants we use for food. This is Jeff Gilman and Cindy Proctor. Together, we have over 50 years of research, teaching, and hands-in-the-dirt experience with growing plants, and over 100 years of experience eating them. And Cindy, we got all kinds of stuff to cover today. But uh, before we cover everything, you know, we, we should tell everybody about that podcast yes, contest. Yes, please do. We didn't win. Surprisingly. <laughs> Surprisingly. We, we were with some tough competition. We were. Yes. But we really appreciate all of your support. A number of you gave us a, a lot of votes, and we really appreciate the time and energy you spent doing that, and um, it made us feel really good about what we do. And you know, what I love more than the votes are the emails that we get. So keep them coming. I really appreciate your feedback, and I, I'm excited for our future uh, discussions. Absolutely. We had some great emails this week, and there is one in particular that we received from uh, Jessica Arias from Costa Rica, and it was really neat to have an email from Costa Rica. Jessica wrote to us about our pineapple episode. Now, pineapples are a really neat fruit, and we thoroughly enjoyed talking about it. We mentioned that Costa Rica is the number one producer of pineapples in the world, and Jessica certainly appreciated that, but she wanted us to point out some problems with pineapple production. And I have to admit, they're problems that I wasn't aware of. Me neither. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know. Sadly, it's not widespread information. Exactly. So thank you, Jessica. We really appreciate getting this information. Never hesitate from telling us if you think we've got it wrong, we want to know that. And if you think that there's a piece of information that we haven't offered that needs to be out there, we want to know that too. So Jessica was pointing out a little bit of a shortcoming with our podcast. And after looking into it, we're always going to check up, but after looking into it, we, we kind of missed the boat on this one. I don't think it's something that we necessarily should have devoted the show to, but it's definitely something we should have mentioned. So I'm actually going to read Jessica's email to us so that you can uh, learn a little bit about pineapple production as well. So again, this is from Jessica Arias, and I'm going to paraphrase uh, just a short part of her email. I have a comment to make about the pineapple episode. As you mentioned, we are currently the main producer of pineapple, but as a consequence, we are facing a lot of awful consequences. Health problems, both environmental and human, lots of deforestation, water and soil pollution, and social injustice, loss of biodiversity, and so much more. It is very sad for us, and mainly for our local communities that are being affected by the pineapple plantations. Um, you know, I've looked into it more. There are certainly pineapple plantations that are doing a great job in Costa Rica. But it also appears that there are a number of places that are not necessarily producing pineapples in a way that is um, both environmentally conscious and conscious of human beings and, and what they need. So I don't want to go too deeply into it, but I definitely think that this is an issue, and I encourage you all to look into this a little bit further. The crops we eat are absolutely fascinating, and they're wonderful, but we also need to be conscientious and thoughtful about the way that we produce them, and that doesn't appear to always be happening with pineapple in Costa Rica. Agreed. All right. Now, for today, we are going to talk about dates. Have you been on one recently? (laughs) I'm just kidding. <laughs> Suzanne and I go out all the time. Yeah. But the, so let me, t- let me tell you the major problem, the major, the major problem with looking up stuff on dates. <laughs> or do I even need no, to? No, enough said, right? <laughs> enough, enough said. said. Um, so if you're going to follow up on our podcast about dates, put in date palm. Yes. 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 If you want to find out information on dates. 
<laughs> because interestingly enough, it comes from a palm tree, which is cool in itself. It is cool. Yeah. And, and um, it's neat to see these harvested. So, I, you know, I was aware of so many of these foods, you know, being a horticulturist, I've been exposed to a lot of them, but not at the depth Right. That, that you get into when you really look into them, start reading the scientific papers. And by the way, I've got a really okay. cool set of scientific okay, papers. Okay, I can't wait. To, I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> so tell me, what, tell me what you thought about dates as you, as you got into it. So dates were surprisingly from a palm tree, which I had known, but these palm trees are like majestic. I mean, they're 40 feet tall. And the harvesting and the pollination that goes into mm -hmm. creating this little date that is sold either as a dried fruit or candied or, you know, and there's several recipes out there that you can eat them that all involve syrup and cream cheese. How, how could you not like that? Absolutely. I think that how they're harvested uh, and how they're grown and harvested and pollinated just really fascinated me to no end. So I, I want us to share that today. Absolutely. But I think most of our listeners would know that what a date is, but that it is an oval cylindrical shape, you know, fruit. Well, well, when, it, when, and, it, when, it, when it first matures, it's over and cylindrical, but yes. we usually eat it kind of, you know, after it kind of. Right. It puckers like an oversized yeah. grape. But uh, nonetheless, they're about three, sometimes seven centimeters big. and So what, about three inches? Yeah, about three inches. And they're available at the grocery store year round. And because we eat them dried, that's that's the big thing. And I love eating them in chopped up fruit salad. I have had that. Yes, before. I like them in fruit yes. salad. I like. The, have you had date bread? Bread with no, dates? No, I it? haven't. It's, it's it's good. I'm not um, a bread eater. Well, how much? So growing up, my dad really loved. Well, not just growing up. My dad loves dates. So okay. um, I used to eat them. I won't say frequently, but they were. A semi-regular part of our diet. So they weren't something for my diet until I was older. I mm -hmm. tried them when I was older because they I associated them with prunes, and we know mm -hmm. what prunes do. To, Although these are high in high and relatively high in fiber. They are there, so it's kind of associated with prunes, right? And so no kid was going to be caught eating a prune. Okay, so <laughs> so I uh, I did try them as an adult, and they're okay. Like they're they're okay. I even brought some with us today. Why don't you? Why don't, uh, so. I've, you have I've eaten, eaten a couple, yes. You've I've eaten, eaten a couple already? Yes. Tell me what, what strikes you about a date. Because, you know, it is a food that a lot of people don't eat much. or Their last recollection of a date will have been 10, 20 years ago. So, right. So what strikes you when um, you eat the date? It is, it is like an, a mushy raisin. A mushy raisin. Yes. See, that's, why, that's the way it looks. Uh-huh. You know, you pointed out earlier that it's, it's very like a, a raisin in both its looks and its tastes. And it's, it's really the same thing. I mean, a grape, raisins were valuable a long time ago because they were easily stored. You know, once they become a raisin, they don't get a lot of bacteria, they don't get a lot of problems. And dates did the same thing. I mean, dates date back to about you know, six to 8,000 years ago. They were in cultivation, although certainly they were um, used by gatherers before that. Um, there are about 14 species of dates, although I say they're the genus that the date's in, which, by the way, is, oh, what is it? Phoenix. Phoenix. Isn't that an awesome yeah. genus name? And that's a that's a popular name of palms that are in Zone 10. Right. So, you know, not a lot of folks would be able to grow this. No. Even, even in their greenhouse. You Southern, know? Southern California. Yes. Um, so Arizona. In that genus, Phoenix. <laughs> in the Phoenix genus, there, yeah. are, there are 14 species. Really, there's only the date palm that has that much economic importance. There are a few others that are used for cattle. 
one other one has a sap that can be collected. And we'll talk about sap collection on date palms in a little bit. Kind of an interesting thing. There's actually a Persian song about the 360 uses of the date palm. And that's one of the things that really struck me about this tree was it's used for so many things. It originates in the Middle East. The uh, uses include, so this song with the 360 uses actually doesn't include all 360 uses. <laughs> but, but I know what it is. But it, it does mention uh, date spreads, date pastes, syrup, sugar, the sap, juice, vinegar, and perfume. Hmm. Now, Dang. the sugar I can understand. Dates to me taste a little figgy. Yeah, well, they are. Yeah. They are a little, yeah. Yeah, they're a little, like, like a fig almost. You know, actually, if I was going to compare it, I'd say raisin, fig, prune. Yeah. If you mix all those together, you come up with a date. With a date, date, right? date. Exactly. Exactly. For dinner. No, sorry. <laughs> now, now um, date palm was a, a huge food source in the Middle East, but it's also very valuable because of uh, building materials. You could use its trunks for columns and beams. You could use what's called the midribs to weave uh, walls of traditional houses. You could actually construct fishing boats out of these things. They you have could use sorry, they have four to five inch long thorns yeah. on the side of the trunks. You could use awesome. those for weapons. Yeah. It's just an interesting plant that could be used in a, a whole variety of different ways. They'll uh, bear fruit after four to five years. They're generally although they are generally grown vegetatively, in other words, by root pieces. And the reason they're grown this way is so they can maintain cultivars, of which they're about a hundred cultivars or so. The trees can live to be 150 years old. And there are, these are, and I've used this word before, see how many of you remember this word, they are dioecious. And what oh. does dioecious mean? <laughs> separate, separate male, male and female plants. Separate male and female plants, and, exactly. And you know, it's really interesting how they pollinate them. Yes. Did you look into that too? I did. I have, I actually have, one of the papers I gathered had this really nice phrase, which I'll read to you later. Okay. But anyway, go ahead. Well, what fascinated me is, you know, I mentioned earlier how majestic the phoenix palm is. It's also strong enough not only to do all the things you mentioned, like help build homes and shelters, but it can hold up to 250-pound man to acquire their sheaths, which has the male pollen in it and the female parts mm -hmm. <laughs> in it. And they, they take the sheaths away from the male plant, and they dry the pollen and wait for the female to re be receptive to the, to the pollen. So I just thought that was incredibly fascinating. The she's are 10 pounds. Yeah, like, these these huge things of pollen. It's yes, just incredible. They are 10 pounds. And the, the old method was to take those male flowers and actually hang them on the female flowers and allow the pollen to move down. Okay. And that probably wasn't as reliable. As the method that probably you and I discovered, and I found an interesting paper on it, okay. which is basically... You want me to go ahead? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, which was basically blowing pollen up into the trees. And I actually have this one section here which talks about it. And by the way, this is very similar to what's known as an air blast sprayer. And I'll talk about that in a second. Okay. <laughs> actually, read this. An operator stood on the fixed height platform and directed the delivery tube at the bloom area. The pollen and flower mixture left the delivery tube in a 450 mile per hour airstream. Awesome. 
you've got this airstream. So you've got the pollen cut with flour and being blasted through this tube up into the tree to get the pollen onto the female pot. Absolutely. And as I was saying, is, I don't know if you're familiar with air blast sprayers, but it's a sprayer that's used for things like pecan trees, which right. can reach 90 and 100 feet. Mm-hmm. And these sprayers use really high winds to blast your pesticide up into the canopy. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like they were doing, in fact, I say it sounds like I got to see some of this. They're doing essentially the same thing that those Mm -hmm. air blast sprayers are doing. One thing that was particularly interesting to me, and I don't know if you have any experience with this. Have you ever used an electrostatic sprayer? Mm -mm. Okay. So an electrostatic sprayer, I I found a research article on it with the pollen, although I didn't find that it was actually used industrially. I did find this. An electrostatic sprayer is one which actually gives the pollen or the spray, and I'm used to using a spray, a charge. So everything that's connected to the earth is grounded. You know, you've done electricity or you know enough about electricity, you know what grounding something is. Sure. The earth has a negative charge. A tree that's connected to the earth, therefore, has a negative charge. So if you spray a positive particle, opposites attract, the positive particle will connect. So I saw some experimentation where they um, gave the pollen a positive charge, and then when they sprayed it using this air blast, it would make it even more efficient than the air blast. That's really neat. Isn't it? You can buy electrostatic sprayers. They're not super common, but they're extremely effective. They give you wonderful coverage. Okay. So electrostatic sprayers, cool things. But far from the only cool thing with dates. (laughs) Uh, This... Every single time we do one, it's like more exciting. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So a couple of the things that I found, so so let me be honest. After I got this uh, letter from Jessica telling us about problems with pineapple production, I wanted to look up things. Well, am I missing something on date production? Because I'd hate to go right from one episode where I missed something's really bad to another episode where I missed something again. Let me tell you a little bit about dates. They do have some problems. Most of the problems aren't really awful terrible, but there's certainly some significant problems. And one of the practices that I don't know if it's used all the time, but it is at least used regularly, is bagging fruit. Now, bagging fruit is something that I've done for a long, long time. And basically, it's taking bags and putting them around the fruit to protect them as they mature. You put it around the fruit when they're young. I've done this with apples, peaches, and it works really well, but it's extremely labor-intensive. So you can only do so many, so many fruits. But with date palms, what you need to understand is that dates, they're not born singly. They're born in these huge, huge bunches. So you can put these bags, these basically bags of this fine white fabric, plenty of holes in them, plenty of air circulation around these big bunches of dates, and it protects them from insects and apparently works really, really well. Again, I don't know how widespread this is. Well, but I think what you're alluding to is that think about the zone that these uh, palm trees thrive in or have to grow yeah, in. zone 10. And around the time that they're harvesting the dates, what's the temperature, which is in the summer. So somebody is up there mm-hmm. in 100 degree temperature, you know, putting those bags around. So that's right. a lot of labor. It is a lot of labor. But of course, that's also why your bags have, you know, it's a fabric and not oh, a sure. plastic. You sure. know, the interesting thing when I did this in Minnesota, you could actually do it with a plastic bag and it would be okay. <laughs> well, down that was here, the tundra. Down here, you do it in a plastic bag. And again, we're in North Carolina and it'll, it'll just fry. Yeah, that is a lot of effort. But putting the bags around the, um, 
States also allows you to harvest them more easily. In fact, that's often the way they're harvested. Mm -hmm. You have these bags and you bring down the entire bag of fruit. Well, it does catch the ones that harvest earlier than others. And the other thing is, is before they ripen, they do thin those chains of palm, of uh, yes. dates, if you will. Now, we need we should explain thinning a little bit, okay. which is common for people who, I mean, I did thinning my whole life. Sure. I was brought up on a small orchard. Thinning means that you pick off some fruit, like you have a cluster of three, let's talk about apples because most of you are familiar with apples. You have a cluster of three apples. You pull off two of those apples so that the one apple can reach its full potential. And it's bigger and better and, and right. juicier and all that. And, and right. dates are the same thing. And they don't reduce the weight, though, that the tree could potentially produce. They just reduce the number. So you have bigger dates, you know, as a result. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just every day. Uh, anyway. I want you to know, I didn't come to, I didn't go there until today. <laughs> it's your um, fault. <laughs> so the big producers of dates uh, right now, probably ones that you'd expect, Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, these are big producers. And it's also worth pointing out that we do have date production here in the United States. And I'm stopping myself from making just an awful joke on date Never mind. Okay. They were introduced to uh, Mexico and California around 1765, and there is a date industry here in the United States. I in, found it to California be in Arizona. Area. Yeah. It's a big one, and they they uh, have three inches of rain a year, which is the perfect for these palm trees because they need lots of water. The folks can apply lots of water, but they don't want any humidity. Right. And that's that's the, the key for those palm trees to thrive. Yeah, see, dates were used in ancient times as a food that you could store and travel with, but that's not the fresh date. See, the fresh date is very vulnerable to rot, but if you dry it properly, it becomes very invulnerable to rot, and you can use it on your long sea voyages or whatever. So it was very, very important for that. One thing about, I was talking about the, this, uh, the date palms and how they do in the environment and whether they're bad for the environment. And actually, generally, they're considered good for the environment. The reason is because they have a really high salt tolerance and because, although they certainly like a lot of water, they handle drought really well. They're one of those plants that if you give them water, they'll eat up as much as you can give them. Right. Well, basically, as much as you can and give them. They can them. sit in water. Right. Uh -huh. But they can also sit on dry land. And so for reclaiming desert areas... These are a key species, one that, one that is almost certainly part of your mix. Another interesting thing I found out, to go back to the pollination for just a second, just because this is a weird fact that I found. Okay. So with so many crops that are dioecious, we talk about how many males you need for females. I have numbers for that. Okay. So it's a, for 100 females, you'll need any place between two and five males. <laughs> Thanks, nature. <laughs> that's just, that's typical nature. It is, it is, but it, it, uh, it, never, it never fails to amuse me. Anyway, all right, so are you ready for the amusing part here? Or, or... I've been amused. You've been amused enough? I'm ready to be more amused. So date wine is a thing. <laughs> date wine. Date wine. Date wine is a thing, and I actually have this, this one brand of date wine, not from the United States, and I just have to quote this. Due to its good ingredients... The date is considered to be an excellent food for athletes, pregnant women, women after childbirth, and anyone who requires the highest possible concentration of natural energy. So, with a 13.5% alcohol, this date wine is excellent for athletes and for pregnant women. Wait a minute, say that percentage again? 13.5% alcohol. Yeah, I'm sorry, but we can't recommend this. I simply 
We, you just we, wanted to say date wine. I just want to say date wine, but <laughs> I've got I've got more. I've told you uh, so many uses for the date, the tree, the fruit, but there's another use, the sap. Did you read it all about drinking the sap? No, I did not. Okay. Well, the sap can be collected. Now, basically, you cut the tree and collect the sap. It can be done, from what I saw, a couple different ways, but essentially cutting the tree and collecting the sap. The sap can be um, then fermented, okay? And you can drink this fermented sap. It has between 5 and 8% alcohol. It's kind of like beer. In terms of its alcohol percent, mm-hmm. kind of like beer. It's a very common drink, um, particularly in uh, Bangladesh, okay? But there's a, there's a problem, and that's that people who uh, drink this fermented uh, date palm, around the time that people drink this, this alcohol, you tend to find a spike in Nipah virus. Nipah virus is a particularly deadly virus that fruit bats actually have. Okay. It's not transmitted much human to human. And certainly fruit bats don't bite humans very much. So then the question is, well, wait a minute, how are these humans getting it and why are they getting it around the time that they are harvesting and drinking fermented uh, date palm sap? Is it the fermenting? No. Here's what happens. And by the way, this uh, fermented date palm sap is called tari. What happens is that the people go out, they cut their slits in the palm or whatever collection method they're using, they put the buckets beneath that to collect. Well, the fruit bats like this sap too. And the, when the fruit bats feed on it, they get saliva in it. And in fact, this one researcher has images of fruit bats urinating into the collection buckets. <laughs> and this urine can, of course, carry you the... You just killed the wine industry. <laughs> can, can carry the Nipah virus. It sounds amusing, and I have to admit I giggled a little bit, but this is serious stuff. This is a terrifying virus, which is often deadly, causes swelling of the brain. This is not a joke. If you are ever in Bangladesh and are offered tari, refuse it. (laughs) It could have bat urine. And worse than that, that could carry the Nipah virus, which would be deadly and which would really stink for you. (laughs) So stay away from that. And uh, yeah, I found a number of articles on that and it was really, really, (laughs) really, really fascinating. Well, you know, I'm thinking if I ever went to Bangladesh... I would want to be adventurous, and I would probably partake in tasting that uh, day wine. I have to admit that I would too, but now that I've read this, um, there, are, there are safe ways to do it and unsafe ways to do it. And in fact, one of the papers that, uh, that I read was actually on you know, how they should be collecting it. I mean, you can exclude the fruit bats from that area with cloth or whatever, and when it's done properly, that's what, what's done. But if it's not done properly, and more often than not, apparently, it's not done properly, you run the risk of of this. Okay. I didn't see that coming. That was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I do my best. All right. So I'm I'm excited. I'm excited about next week. I am too. Because, so let let me tell you how this all originated. Once again, my brother said, Jeff, you've got to do rutabaga. I just read an interesting article on rutabaga. So he sent me this article. It was fascinating. And I, we'll mention it uh, We'll mention it next week. Rutabaga sounds exciting, but the thing was I'd never tried rutabaga before. So you know what I did? <laughs> I tried rutabaga. And I know you you described exactly yeah. how you cooked it. I, I can't wait to tell you guys uh, how I cooked it I next week. I can't wait week, to try but, it. But we'll talk, we'll talk about that next week. Thanks to Shauna Clark for giving us the idea to do dates today. This was a fun one to research. It was. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks to all of you who voted for us once again. 
Thanks to all of you who are listening to this podcast. Hey, rate us and tell us how you like us. Drop me an email anytime at jgilman at uncc.edu. Once again, that's j-g-i-l-l-m-a-n at uncc.edu. We love to hear from you. Every time we get an email, it just makes our day. This has been The Plants We Eat, a production of the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens with support from the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, also from UNC Charlotte, and the Isle Group from UNC Charlotte. We look forward to talking to you soon.